Good morning. Good to see you guys. I'm a, I'm a big fan. I've got two of your books. And um, anyway, I, I've been looking forward to this interview. Uh, so, uh, as you know, I'm, I'm, the, uh, I'm a retired Air Force colonel. Uh, got a Ph.D. from Arizona State University uh, in a related field, public administration, but a lot of political philosophy. Um, but more importantly, I'm the vice president and vice chair for Stand Together Against Racism and Radicalism in the Services. And while we have an educational mission, uh, what we're learning is we're getting more and more educated every day when we try to address some of the concerns that we see in our American society. And so you are an especially important uh, voice in America right now. So if you don't mind, I'm going to give you a quick introduction and then I'm going to jump into some questions for you. Uh, uh, Dr. Wilford Riley is professor of political science at Kentucky State University and the author of several important books, uh, probably two that are my favorite, uh, Taboo, Ten Facts You Can't Talk About, and Hate Crime Hoax. He is a frequent guest on national TV, having appeared on Tucker Carlson Tonight, Laura Ingram, and Life, Liberty, and Levin, among others. He received his PhD from Southern Illinois University and his Juris Doctorate from the University of Illinois. Uh, welcome, Dr. Riley. Yeah, great to be here. Yeah, let me just jump right in uh, to the interview. Uh, to better understand how you arrived at where you are today and the topics or issues that have motivated you to research and write about, can you briefly share with us your educational journey and why you chose political science and law as academic and practitioner disciplines. Sure. I mean, so my academic journey, I suppose, beget I grew up in the hood. My mom was an inner city school teacher. Her name is Jean Ward. And she taught in a bunch of urban districts in Illinois. We lived in Chicago first. Uh, we moved to the east side of nearby Aurora, a great city, but at that time, one of the most violent in the Midwest. And I went to essentially the schools, especially East Aurora Senior, that she taught in as a, as a sub or a teacher. And I was a pretty normal kid. I mean, I was an athlete, although not a strikingly good one. Um, still, I still keep in touch with Angie Jones on, on rare occasions, but my girlfriend from high school. And I didn't really perceive myself as a potential intellectual light or anything like that. But I decided to apply to college. My other choice, thanks for your service, by the way, was the military. And as you probably know, the working class high schools in Illinois get a substantial amount of military recruitment. I mean, we had an ROTC armory on the campus and, you know, got, recruiters would come out to the track sometimes and jog with you like, oh, college athletics doesn't work out. There's always the option of serving uncle. You know, so that I thought about that. Um, I applied to some of the state universities as well, and I got into Northern Illinois University, ended up transferring to Southern Illinois University. At this point, just pretty normal educational career. But I, I kind of pulled it together grade-wise my final year at SIU and decided to apply to law school. Uh, to some extent, just because if you're if you're a fairly smart kid and you don't necessarily know what you're going to do, I mean, I was maybe 20, 21 at this point, um, grad school is always sort of the option there. I, I now, when I advise, encourage young men to think twice about that and look at what the loan picture is at your school and so on. But I ended up going to the in-state law school, the University of Illinois, and did reasonably well, graduated. And by this point, I had started to think that uh, some kind of academic or high professional career was possible. And I actually ended up going back to Southern Illinois because I, I was contacted as one of they were looking for more men, more minorities, a couple other things, more in-state Illinoisans uh, on state faculties at that time. 
So I was contacted about a potential program called uh, DFI, as I recall, targeted at you know Illinois males, focus on minorities. And the Southern Illinois pitch was essentially, if you come down here, we'll don't get a PhD. Essentially, you'll be required to teach some classes and so on, but we'll fund you for four or five years. You can you can try to try to complete that degree. So I went back to SIU, and as it as it turned out, you know the gods had other plans. Uh, my mom became very ill, so I I was on campus at Southern Illinois for about three years teaching and writing, uh, and then I ended up returning to Chicago, where I did a I did a whole range of things. I worked in the sales and trading floor sector, um, in that sort of faux Wolf of Wall Street environment. Uh, people used to jokingly call it the Coyote of LaSalle Street scene. Um, you know, I, I actually was the head of a team of canvassers for the human rights campaign for a while. So I got to practice my uh, dodging and uh, scuffling skills. You'd go to often fairly hostile areas. We were based on the south side of Chicago and we traveled. But you'd sort of post up and wave and ask people if they had time to give money for causes like gay rights. A very, very entertaining job. But that actually is the, the field I left to go into business. But I did that for quite a while and finally ended up completing the PhD, which obviously is a goal of mine. I don't like to leave things undone. Um, in 2015, I actually went back to Southern Illinois, a fairly moving moment, at least for me and a few close family members, but got the degree. And then, I mean, by that point, I had taken eight or nine years to get the damn thing. So I wanted to do something with it. I, I applied in the academic job market as opposed to staying in business. And from there, it's a pretty standard trajectory. I mean, I was hired by a fairly solid state university. I'm at Kentucky State um, in the capital of KY and went to the campus and from that point forward have uh, pretty much been teaching there. But the, the, the school's been great with allowing uh, pretty broad flexibility. So I've also written a couple of books that are certainly in the intellectual sphere, but are outside that narrow zone of kind of what causes military conflict and political science. One looks at, as of course you know, the, the I think the undisputable fact that a lot of the most high profile sort of racial hate incidents in the USA in recent years, you know, Jussie Smollett, Yasmin Saweet, the burnt black churches, Erica Thomas, you could throw Covington Catholic in there, although it's not in the book, but have turned out to be total fakes. So I look at why, why we seem to be prioritizing victimization to some extent, what the role of the media in this, why so many of these incidents are concentrated on college campuses. I mean, that's more than a third of them. And I mean, perhaps 1% of the U.S. population is currently enrolled in, in a four-year college. So that was the first book. I then wrote Taboo. And from that point forward, I mean, I began, began to be more known in the national scene. So at each stage, I guess it's just, it's a matter of work. And I don't think that, for example, I'm certainly not a legacy. And since I teach at a Black institution, I don't really think affirmative action played that much of a role in my hiring. So it's it's just sort of you know, keep keep going at, at each step. Try to do the best you can at that level. Get your job done. Try to proceed on to the next level. And that's what I did. I solid A minus average in undergrad. Went to grad. Did pretty well there. Got some publications. Decided to apply for academic positions. Got a pretty good one. And just there, you spend four or five hours a day in the office working and writing. So I've got I've got two books uh, out right now. Three, really. Uh, one is an academic monograph. Maybe 50 people read. Um, and I'm working on a fourth uh, as we speak. Well, good. Well, you know, you you mentioned uh, the uh, the different endeavors that you were engaged in. That are, is this audio okay? It sounds weird. Yeah, it's okay on my end. There's a very little bit of a crackle, but it, that shouldn't pick up when you you have the recording of me. I, I did another interview today, and my my audio is fairly clear. That's good. Okay, great. 
Uh, and Todd, Todd will edit out the weird stuff here. Uh, you know, when you were describing the different endeavors that you were involved in outside of Chicago, Illinois there, Aurora, uh, I can identify with, with a lot of that because uh, my formative years were spent in Joliet. Oh, okay. I, I know you know where Joliet is. Uh, my last month in Joliet, uh, I was exposed to a racial riot in the high school, uh, which I knew there were tensions and whatever. And it, uh, it just kind of surprised me that uh, we could see that kind of uh, angst uh, among students. And then we moved out to Colorado. Uh, but I wanted to ask you, you touched upon this, but I want to ask a little bit more directly and, and focus in on how would you describe your teaching milieu there at Kentucky State University or more broadly across the nation? as you uh, encounter other academics. Uh, and do you see any patterns across our nation? Well, Kentucky State, first of all, I think that this gets into some of the things that I write about as a public intellectual or even academic writer. So I definitely think that there is an elite in the USA in the old Roman capital sense. And I think most of us in political science would probably agree with this. So when you look at uh, higher education, the media, the NGO sector, the great charities and so on down the line, you're looking almost entirely at a group of people that fit one particular mold. So, I mean, coastal, maybe Great Lakes, you know, urban, lower upper class, conventionally center left, almost no heterodox views, mostly white, although that doesn't matter very much, I think, in practice anymore. But there, there's one group that you see very represented in, for example, American media, American upper academia. I mean, if you look at the Ivy League, so on down the line, the the reason that this group has far less power than they think, though, is that they are very limited in terms of actual reach. So in terms of your point, when I think about my teaching environment at Kentucky State, it's a mix of African-American and Southern normal citizens, essentially. Um, the kids are great. It's a mix of uh, Black Appalachian and out-of-state students, mostly pretty high performing. We put in an ACT, SAT requirement. It's pretty solid a couple of years back. So, I mean, people often ask, do you have any trouble as kind of a center right writer, as, you know, one of the talking heads on TV teaching there? And the answer is really absolutely not. Um, you'll get jokes sometimes. I wouldn't be surprised if four or five kids at some point in the future protested me. But the large majority of students, I mean, if you're teaching something like a criminal justice class or a political science class with a bunch of, you know, athletes for the school and people that want to be business people, law students, um, the, the receptions in general, very positive. And I would assume that that would be true in most of the country. I would assume that if you're teaching in a community college, a military academy, an a and I mean, the large majority of the schools that produce actual useful citizens in the country, that would be pretty much what you would encounter. I mean, we, we have a police force with shotguns. You know, I don't, I, great guys, but I don't know, locked up. But I don't think that there would be a large scale riot really tolerated on the campus. And I, that's true for most of the institutions in this, this region that I've gone to. So yeah, you, you get some jokes and you banter with students and so on. But the image that we have of US academia is almost non-functional. Uh, I really think comes from a pretty small sample size. I mean, when I, when I talk to people about that and kind of interrogate the data, it's almost always, you know, Portland State, Evergreen, Berkeley, Cal Riverside. I mean, th these are literally schools within about a thousand mile strip of land on the West Coast, you know, maybe Bowdoin or something like that. But yeah, I, I enjoy it. I enjoy teaching at K-State. And most of my colleagues in sort of U.S. Southern academia like it pretty well. Good job. Great kids. Well, I, I, I would uh, submit, and you can disagree with me, uh, 
that our media represents a political elite. And in many ways, they amplify uh, very isolated uh, examples of, of the types of phenomena you're describing. Would, would you agree or disagree with that? I would absolutely agree. I mean, I, I assume you've read uh, the OG Tom Soule's great book, The Vision of the Anointed. And I mean, I, I think that what we're seeing with the American lower upper class is just the anointed. So for those those viewers that haven't uh, done the reading you and I have by this point, just understandable because we're both in the profession. But Tom Soule, in one of his books, argues that there are basically two ways of looking at the human condition. One is what he calls the tragic vision, which is the idea that life is hard. Uh, humans are, I wouldn't say basically bad, but flawed predatory apes. And so institutions that have worked throughout history, give the examples of the Catholic Church, the fatherhood, if you will, family, the town meeting, these should be treasured and taken quite seriously because they represent steps forward from barbarism. Having actually seen barbarism living in Chicago and Fairleyhood areas in the 80s, I utterly agree with this. You need dads and families, you need cops on the street, you need traffic lights that work. If you've ever been to the third world, which I have traveling, and I assume you have in your military capacity, you see the absence of those things. I mean, you'll you'll be stopped from traveling down a road one day because, quote, there are bandits. So the absence of civilization is bad. And at any rate, that's the that's the tragic vision. That's vision one. Vision two, the vision of the anointed, is presented by Soul as the idea that we now have developed expertise. We have entire fields like sociology that are devoted to analyzing the human condition. And what we should do in society is trust to these experts to change society away from the lost primitive barbarism of the past. We don't need dads or Catholics or cops on the beat. That, that was the old way. We're going to design a new way. And the book goes through several hilarious examples of attempts to do this, like the 1960s criminal justice revamp. And Seoul, this dry, upper-class Black American economist, just says things, hard numbers, like, no, crime actually increased 600%. Here are the data tables. And I, I'm with Seoul on this one. I think the anointed, the, again, coastal or Great Lakes, Ivy or Big Ten, urban, center-left, upper-class, has increased in size and become even more confident in its abilities. But because my take would be that because of a reliance on very flawed theory, I mean, a lot of what you get in academia is just watered down Marxism. And because for the past 30 years of a lack of selectivity among this group, if you look at legacy programs, if you look at affirmative action programs, in practice, you get a lot of idiots and they're often wrong. And we see this just over and over and over again. I don't want to go into a rant that's going to become my next uh, speech for an audience, actually. But I mean, like COVID-19, this, this was constant. People, doctors on the front lines, like frontline COVID care collective, if I have the name correct, were consistently saying things like, well, you know, ivermectin seems to be fairly effective here, or respirators are damaging people. Uh, there's not much evidence that you're at a, at a whole lot of risk from COVID if you're under 60, just so on down the line, point after point after point. And the official public policy, which is designed by these sort of experts who avoided the field and ran a lot of mathematical models, consistently lagged by, I'd estimated about seven, seven and a half months, what people engaging the disease were saying. So we, keep, we kept seeing these sort of stupid doomsday predictions, like Niall Ferguson, who essentially just ran regressions forward in a lab, uh, arguing that two million Americans would die of COVID-19 by last September. I mean, that's what led to the lockdowns here. So at any rate, the anointed of, of Thomas Sowell's texts are, are very much with us, and they're still usually wrong. 
You know, I, I really appreciate those observations. Uh, you know, to a certain extent, uh, I wonder uh, about the influence that's taking place within our nation. It's, I don't think it's centralized per se, but it, it seems to have uh, coalesced around perhaps a guiding principle. Uh, you mentioned watered-down Marxism. It seems like we do have political elite in various segments of our society, whether media or the government, academia, that have coalesced around Marxist thinking. And in particular, uh, most recently, the critical race theory that's been advanced uh, uh, across multiple sectors. Uh, what, are your, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I would agree. I mean, broadly speaking, I, I usually use the term ethno-Marxism for CRT. But yeah, if you're if you're talking about the American sort of low upper class discursive media and academic elites, the, Marx is extraordinarily influential. I mean, people will often joke that the only place you'll still meet a real communist today is an American university campus. And that is that is almost true. Um a lot of the ideas of the 1960s were carried onto the campus by the former radicals who moved into higher education, and they're still extraordinarily prevalent. So in, in hard data terms, if you look at contemporary Amer American academia, and you look at the figures from Econ Live or something like that, it seems to slant about 93% to the left. So, I mean, there are a large number of fields like sociology, history, where you have 33.5 liberals or leftists for every conservative or Republican. So it's not the sort of two to one split. I think most people think it is when they say, oh, will you boys on the right stop complaining? It's 40 to one or 30 to one. Uh, the same data set from EconLive, Prevalence of Marxism in Academia, finds that about 18% of people in the social sciences are actual communists. They actually identify as Marxists. So I, I think that this has an enormous impact, whether people acknowledge it or not, on the thought of most of the people that go from an Ivy or Big Ten or Pac-10 institution, SEC to some extent, into leadership roles. I noticed as a younger guy, I thought of those as athletic conferences, but the point, the point remains, like if you come from that environment, just as if all you watch all day is Fox News, I mean, I think it's a better choice than MSNBC, but you're gonna be looking at things through a conservative frame. You're gonna be discounting perhaps 10% of what Hannity says, I mean, Tucker Carlson, I know I do, but that's still going to shape how you see things. And the, the same thing is true to a much greater extent if you go to, say, Brown and certain majors. I don't think that the staff of Fox News is anything like 95% conservative. And I mean, there are very skillful counterpointers like Juan Williams that are brought on specifically to argue. I mean, Democratic politicians and so on. So in academia, you're getting at least that probably more intensely. And you're getting it around mental and psychological and sociological topics. And of, of course, that, that has an effect. Um, a, a final comment on this, the CRT idea is sort of a post-Marxist idea that again, at a low key parasitical level has become extraordinarily common. And essentially the core concepts there, I think there are three of them. I said this in a recent piece for City Journal, but one of them is Richard Delgado's idea that all of society is actually set up to oppress minorities or the poor, it's set up to keep the proles in line. So the point of the criminal justice system isn't to lock up rapists and domestic batterers. I, I would say there's some classism, if not racism in the criminal justice system, but it has a pretty clear point. Delgado would disagree though. He would say that the overall purpose of the system is to hold down those who should be held down. I mean, his, his quote is that racism is every day, it's everywhere, it's constant. 
Um, that, that's part one. The society looks facially neutral, but it's structured to oppress you. Uh, component two, I think, would come from Delgado a bit, but more from Ibram Kendi. And that's the idea that you can see evidence of this oppression just from the fact that different groups perform differently. So one of Kendi's academic points is the argument that the only reasons for large performance groups between performance gaps between two racial groups, say blacks and whites, the only possible reasons could be either A, genetic inferiority, or B, some kind of hidden, subtle, complex racism. And whenever you see one of these gaps, unless you want to assume that blacks are genetically inferior, you are recognizing racism. And if you defend this racism, you are a racist. It's worth noting that, again, this is nonsense. And Tom Soule, Jude O'Neill, and other people have pointed this out. Uh, groups that differ in terms of characteristics as visible and important as race also tend to differ in terms of age, attitudes toward education, so on. And if you adjust for these things, most of the gaps disappear. And then you can see the effect of actual racism, which seems to be on the order of 3% right now. But at any rate, point one, system set up to oppress. Point two, gaps show the oppression. And the, the third point of CRT is that the only way to solve this is to mandate equity, which essentially means that no matter how people are currently performing, everyone should be proportionally represented in the final pool for any serious enterprise. So when people say there's not equity in scholastic gifted programs, what they mean is that there aren't enough blacks and particularly Hispanics. We need to, we need to increase those numbers and decrease the numbers of higher performing whites and Asians. And there, there's never an explanation given for how Asian Americans or for that matter, Nigerians or Jews or whatnot are doing well under the current system because these groups have not traditionally been considered white. They're just shuttled to the side and called something like white adjacent. And the argument continues, we need 17% Hispanics in every AP class. So th those are the three points, uh, oppressive system, gap show oppression and equity. And this idea is extraordinarily prevalent in modern American academia. Uh, I, it would be impossible to get through a top 500 college without being exposed to this over and over again. You know, I, I, I find that uh, to be striking analysis uh, in terms of explaining the dynamics of, of what's happening right now. Uh, we see that in the Department of Defense. Uh, we have diversity, equity, and inclusion officers now uh, in all the, the organizations. And even here uh, in my backyard at the Air Force Academy, uh, we came across a memorandum recently that uh, established diversity and inclusion officers and NCOs at the cadet wing groups and squadron levels. And they're discernible by a purple braid on their left uh, arm shoulder. And they have a separate chain of command. Uh, they don't report to the wing group or squadron commanders. Um, and so when I saw that memoranda, it made me think of political commissars in the Soviet Union. Uh, the, and the, the racism, the oppressor, oppressed uh, analogy, uh, Hannah Arendt uh, wrote in Origins, The Origins of Totalitarianism. She explained very similar dynamics that took place in the uh, Soviet Union and Western Europe. Um, so do you, do you see some of those patterns uh, playing out in America today? Yeah, I, I think the obvious analogy to, and again, it's important not to take this too far over the line. I mean, people have said that the obvious analogy to Southern racism in the USA would be either South African apartheid or Nazi Germany. Clearly, there are differences of scale when you look at those, those situations. The 
white, black, East Asian, so on clashes in the USA aren't on par with Hitler gassing six million Jews and eight million people. So it's, it's important to keep to keep these things in perspective. But yeah, I mean, the, the obvious analogy for what's going on in the USA right now is one of the cultural revolutions. And when you say that, most people think Russia or China, specifically China. Um, D, so there are a couple levels there. DEI tends to be sort of the enforcement arm of CRT. So virtually everyone who is involved in a DEI professional role is someone who's come out of a field like social work, sociology, HR, black studies, so on down the line, that's heavily imbued with CRT principles. And their entire goal is to promote sort of an equity forward version of race relations in, in your business. So I personally, if, if, there are any, if there's anyone listening that's at that level of CEO or CFO of a company with 150 employees, I would, I would strongly advise you to leave DEI by the wayside. Um, I did fairly well in business and I've never, I've never seen the purpose of it at all. You know, I've been in hiring roles and if you want, I mean, for me, it actually might be more whites, ironically. It, it's kind of funny teaching at a black institution and so on. We sometimes have tried to diversify and bring in more Caucasians. So this is, it's a diverse country these days. But I mean, if I wanted more Irishmen, um, I would find something like an Irish American newspaper. I would encourage qualified, qualified applicants to apply and I would get 10% Irish guys. And that, that would be it. That's it. That's the whole game. And then they'd have to compete just like everyone else. So they could get along with everyone else. So on. Um, might be kind of funny to hear a black guy in management say that, but it's the same rule for blacks. It's the same rule for Hispanics, so on down the line. So the entire idea that you need a complex agency within your business that acts as an independent operator to manage the interactions between the, these different groups, I mean, there, there is an odd vibe to it. There is, there is a fairly Soviet vibe to it. And I think most people kind of correctly feel that perhaps a traditional locker room or trading floor male culture wouldn't be tolerated by the agency. I think many people correctly feel that if you're a white employee and you get into a conflict with, say, a black gay employee under that kind of operating system, you're likely to be judged the aggressor no matter what happens. I, I think there's a fair amount of evidence that's accurate. Um, in terms of its impact, obviously, we haven't yet gotten to Chinese cultural revolution levels of harassment. I, I think I'll end this sort of shorter answer by saying we might, though. I mean, you're starting to see some of the things that are associated with these kind of mentally manipulative systems, certainly on college campuses, uh, struggle sessions come to mind, where you'll be told uh, as an academic, a potential punishment in for a number of things, a student claim of harassment, as you know, would be being brought in front of a panel of peers or immediate supervisors and sort of asked to confess your sins. Do you feel you did this? How could you be more sensitive? How can you change yourself in the future? And you're now seeing this become part of almost orientations and so on, not at my institution, but at a good number, where people will talk about their privileges, um, getting ready for a year, how they're advantaged, how they're disadvantaged, be asked to explain fairly specific things about their sexuality. And many people, especially women, might simply not want to. What's your religion? Uh, the ultimate example of this might be the privilege walk, where everyone is, this is popular now with the junior executives at some firms, I'm sure we see it in higher ed. But you'll put a bunch of people out in a field and you'll say something like, take two steps forward if you are white, two steps forward if you are male, two steps forward if you had a present father, and on and on and on down the line. And so everyone in your business can be ranked by how high performing they are, how privileged they are. So the, the, if that progresses 5% a year or something like that, we'll be looking at something truly bizarre in 10 or 15 years. The, the question is whether it will be allowed to. You're starting to see an enormous sort of center-right backlash 
They're also real. I mean, China just tested a new variety of intercontinental ballistic. I mean, so they're, they're real threats on the horizon. If we're potentially going to fight an air war with China, I mean, are we really going to keep teaching kids about the 72 possible genders and so on? Or are we going to throw them back in the math classroom? But creating independent operating branches within almost every business and every educational institution focused on these ideas, these crit ideas, these equity ideas is uh, potentially a very bad thing. I don't, I don't really think anyone disputes that, at least off the record. Uh, which, which really comes to why STARS was created. Uh, veterans from our armed services that are seeing this play out in our society and recognizing the, the risk and potential damage it's causing to members of our armed forces. You, you've uh, created a term called the CON, Continuous Oppression Narrative, which we've been discussing really uh, in this interview so far. And you've kind of hinted at the risk of letting it play out unchecked. Uh, if you could maybe be specific about the risks that you see in letting this play out unchecked and the antidote to it. Well, the idea of the, the con, I, that was to some extent an unintentional acronym in my first book, but in the second, I didn't change it. I mean, my honest reaction was, this is perfect. But uh, it's the continuing oppression narrative that's sometimes discussed in political science. It has a very, perhaps notably by me, I mean, political science is moving left as well, but I mean, it, it has a recognizable acronym. But at any rate, um, the essential idea of the, the CON is that race relations and the like have changed really, really dramatically in the United States within a fairly short period of time. I don't really think anyone would dispute this. I mean, I recently read Eric Kaufman's The Social Construction of Racism, and he points out that the percentage of both whites and blacks opposed to interracial dating has fallen from, I mean, in the modern era, is never 90% or something like that, but it's fallen from 65% of people to 8% of people over perhaps four or five decades at most. We see very little active racism. I mean, it would be virtually impossible in most cities to imagine the sort of traditional race riots that used to be fairly common, not some looters, but white and black men with pipes and staves fighting in the middle of the street or something like that. There's no chance of that happening. One in four marriages is interracial. So while this is happening, this is good. But at the same time, we seem to see a constant focus on racial issues. Um, so, I mean, the Black Lives Matter narrative in its pure form is that Police in the United States are killing an extraordinary number of young, unarmed minority men. Uh, this is sometimes argued to be almost genocidal. So, for example, celebrity attorney Benjamin Crump actually has a book, which is an Amazon bestseller, called Open Season, The Legalized Genocide of Colored People. You know, Chernobyl has gone on primetime Fox News and said that a totally innocent, presumably unarmed black man is murdered, his language, every day. So you have that storyline. You have the storyline of constant interracial crime. So almost every time you open up the Times or the Washington Post, it seems like you're reading a story about blacks in particular being abused. You know, this there have been something like three Central Park dog walking fistfight cases to make front page headlines in the national media this year, maybe this year and last year. But beyond that, you from Barbecue Becky and Pool Patrol Paul over to Dylan Roof, this is a constant recurring story. And that ties into the broader storyline of systemic racism and white privilege and cultural appropriation and so on. And so one of the things that I set out to look at in the books, particularly Taboo and also in my academic and public intellectual writing, is what's this dichotomy? Why are we 
talking constantly about racial conflict when racial conflict has decreased to almost nothing. And you're talking about, again, a quarter of the marriages interracial, so on. And there were two things that became evident fairly early on. First, the media and academic narrative on this is extraordinarily dishonest. So Black Lives Matter is the topic of the first chapter of the book Taboo, which is just called The Police Aren't Mass Murdering Black People, as I recall. But what I find is that in a typical year, and this is all easily available in the Washington Post, The Counted Project, I believe killedbypolice.net is back up. It's not very controversial. In a typical year, out of about 60 million interactions in an armed country, American Leos, law enforcement officers, kill less than 1,000 people. Uh, because there are a great number of white and Hispanic criminals, a typical year, about 250, 260 of those people will be black, max. Um, and if you get into unarmed, it actually, this number seems to to some extent, have been consciously concealed prior to the WAPO's writing. But if you actually unpack it, pull it out, the total number of unarmed black men killed by white cops, the first year I looked, 2015, was 17. Uh, last year, the total number, I didn't break out whites, but the total number of unarmed black men killed by all cops was 18. Um, to the extent we were looking at the white-only cases, it seems to be about nine of them were shot by white cops. So I haven't verified that yet. But I mean, so the storyline that this happens several times a day or that they, George Floyd is everywhere, that's that's simply not true. Even the George Floyd case was extremely complicated. I mean, George Floyd was high on fentanyl and methamphetamine, which is to put it mildly, a dangerous combination when he died or when he was killed. Um, there, there's almost no chance that this 140 pound lawman kneeling on his back or his neck is what actually caused his death. The only real question for the judge or the jury there, I think, is did Chauvin have a duty to essentially get off and help Floyd once the heart attack or whatever that was began? And I, I think that's an interesting question. Um, but I mean, I've also been in a number of violent situations and things move rapidly. I mean, Chauvin was surrounded, I assume you know much better, but Chauvin was surrounded by a screaming crowd at this time. I mean, He's looking around at his three brother officers, either two or all of whom were men of color, as I recall. I mean, they're they're saying, hold position. This is wait for the EMTs to arrive. By the time that happened, unfortunately, Mr. Floyd was dead. But even the narrative there is a bit fictional. At any rate, the point is, why these stories we know aren't true. Why are they publicized to the extent they are? And this gets back into the narrative that we named and discussed earlier. A big part of it simply is that there's an apparatus that has remained intact since the 1960s in the USA that's devoted to calling out prejudice for large amounts of money. And that might sound like sour grapes from the other side. I mean, right up front, I'm a member myself of the advisory boards of groups like 1776 Unites, which is kind of the black business and social science community's response to the 1619 project. FAIR, of course, which is on an even larger scale probably by this point, which is extremely integrated. Um, so everyone does this. I mean, the Republican Party has a fundraising operation. But I think in terms of this race specific stuff, it's sometimes remarkable how large it is. Um, doing research for Taboo, the SPLC, Southern Poverty Law Center alone, has a well-invested endowment of $470 million. That's that's not annual take. That's just what they have banked in the markets. I mean, that's a bit more than my state university. So and you go beyond there to whatever Reverend Al is these days, the National Action Network. Um, the other old lions, Jesse Jackson's Rainbow and Push combined decades ago. I mean, that's uh, probably a $100 million organization. You have groups that do a lot of good, but still also play in this sector, the NAACP itself. And then you have the new players, uh, the different Black Lives Matter chapters. 
Black Lives Matter under Patrice Colors, according to The Economist, if you add up all chapters, national, regional, et cetera, raised about $10.6 billion during the quote-unquote racial reckoning. That's billion with a B. And as far as I've been able to tell, there's been no accounting for what's happened with that money. That's, that's an incredible amount of cash just coming in, circulating around. Colors' own foundation raised $90 million. No one knows what happened to it. And you can make jokes to some extent. I mean, she just bought three houses, nice ones. A million dollar properties. But the, the large majority of this money obviously wasn't spent on homes. We don't know what it was spent on. It might not have been spent on anything. Um, it might be in Bitcoin right now. It's been not tracked to a remarkable extent. But anywho, these people that are running these organizations that have a sizable financial interest in racial conflict are obviously one reason that we have this continuing focus on racial conflict. And I mean, to answer the second part of the original question, what's the what's the downside of this? I mean, theoretically, a race war in the worst case, but I mean, much more likely would just be continual disaffection among citizens for their toward their countrymen. Um, I've fairly frequently heard black athletes at a southern college say things like, "I wouldn't be a cop." It's not a it's not a hate filled statement. It's just based on this false assumption that the police are quite likely to be murderers, or that there are tens of thousands of violent clashes between law officers and ordinary law abiding black people every year, and so all of this. Poison is a fairly accurate word, I think, keeps seeping into the system because there are people that are intentionally promoting this. And that, that's very problematic. I mean, obviously, the more we can stop that, the more we can fight that, the better. So uh, what can we do about it? What can stars do about it? Well, I, th I, th I think it's important for groups to kind of work in their lane to some extent. I mean, you, your focus would be the military. Um, I think that what, what a lot of us are going to do the importance of STARS or 1776 or FAIR is that people are seeing other veterans or other business people, other taxpayers coming forward and not just, you know, screaming MAGA stuff back at the BLM stuff, but pointing out facts and making coherent arguments about what should be done. So, I mean, your role in the military would be promoting an alternative. I mean, just thinking off the head of some of this design campaigns. I mean, we're all green or something like that or color that matters. You know, but the, your, there'd be an alternative narrative presented to the DEI narrative. I mean, we've had a lot of success with that, with in particular 1776, because the, the argument that the CRT guys are using is you just don't want to teach about race and racism. So 1776 unites with the help of, you know, giants in that, that black business and charitable community like Bob Woodson, Glenn Lowry. We actually designed an educational curriculum that focuses on real American history. So, I mean, you can talk about the, the Indian Wars and describe the military bravery and the atrocities on both sides. You're, the curriculum shouldn't, it, it's insulting to everyone from Custer soldiers to Red Clouds to focus on one massacre where the Indians lost in North Dakota. That, that, that's not what the Indian Wars were like. So this is what you can teach. Here are two victories on one hand, two on the other. Here are the advantages the whites had. Here's the process of buffalo hunting, so on. Um, we focus more on black history, of course, but they're the same thing. If you're going to talk about the um, what, uh, Tulsa race riot, I think the term race massacre there is pretty inappropriate. I mean, it began with a gunfight between both sides. But, I mean, you're, you're going to tell real history. You might say, well, it began with a gunfight between both sides. So there was a suspected lynching. A black small army showed up. It met a white small army. This is why it's so important to diffuse racial tensions. This is what happened. These are the names of the dead, RIP. This is a picture of the monument. You would describe that, and we do, in detail using context. If you're going to talk about slavery, how the slaves get here? 
I mean, that that's a complex process that involved white traders, black traders, so on down the line. So I guess what I'm saying with all this is that the best counter to the fantasy and nonsense on the left is actual facts. Um, that, that's the one sentence answer. But uh, one add on there for someone who's starting sort of an allied group here, you'll be surprised or maybe you won't. But you'll, you'll be surprised by how much of this stuff is just BS. I mean, so, for example, one of the things that was proposed to us as kind of a compromise it, during one encounter with 1776 was, are you at least comfortable with everyone taking an implicit bias test? And I actually did, looked at the research on implicit bias tests, and they don't seem to work at all. Um, the test essentially measures the rapidity of your reflexes when you click on different pictures of humans. And if you click on the black ones faster than the white ones, which I apparently did, you're considered to be a pro-black racist. I like black people quite well, but I don't think I'm a pro-black racist. I don't think I'm a pro-white racist either. And it's just the same thing in reverse for whites. But since the majority of people are white, this labels most whites as bigots. So the next stage is looking at the studies which test whether there's any correlation between implicit bias score and prejudice on a prejudice scale or your hiring decisions as a boss. If there's not, then it means the test is worthless. And as it turns out, there's not. This has been discovered something like nine times. So a lot of these ideas that you're going to confront, like the value of DEI from a managing diversity perspective, implicit bias, stereotype threat, I mean, they're just mostly BS. They're, they're not real. The, you can empirically show that the best sort of athletic and military units are those where everyone's taught what's called civic national identity, reverence for the symbol of the unit, I mean, it just it, this is this is very this goes back to Napoleon. I mean, there it's not very disputed. So I think very often when when someone counters prevalent nonsense with facts, people are at first going to be shocked and almost angry, and they're going to ask, "Why have I heard so much of just this one perspective, which seems to be wrong, which seems to be perhaps forty percent of the argument?" And then if there there's an alternative that you're proposing, people will flock to that. Uh, the 1776 curriculum has been downloaded something like 19,000 times because no one doesn't want to teach about slavery. What people don't want to teach is that slavery was some unique evil of American whites that George Washington invented because that's not true. It's just nonsense. So fight nonsense with fact. So, Dr. Riley, uh, you mentioned civic national identity. When I think of, of the, the two major camps in America today, uh, the great division that we have, it seems to me that they are grouped into pro-American and anti-American factions. And if you agree with that, how would you define an American in terms of civic national identity? Yeah, so that, that's a fascinating question. So one of the, I actually entered the political spectrum with the same kind of fairly cocky center-right business guy perspective to debate the alt-right. I mean, this is 2014, 2015, the alt-right was extremely prevalent. And it struck me that they weren't offering anything. Like, I, I understand why a white American whose ancestors, you know, fought at Bunker Hill might feel some strong attachment to this country and have some questions about immigration. I actually respect that. But at the same time, I mean, probably 30% of perfectly normal, quote-unquote, respectable taxpayers today are Asians, black guys, Jews, Cubans, like we're not leaving and we have guns too. So th this is just, there's no productivity down that path. You might, if you're white, you might think of it as a potential dream or you might prefer having Mexican food and so on in your neighborhood, but it's, it's not viable. There's nothing to offer there. 
So I, I had some debates with alt writers, and I, I think made that point pretty well. I debated Jared Taylor at one point. Uh, in general, I found them to be, you know, pretty gentlemanly, fairly intelligent, just wrong, potentially able to destroy the country if pe enough people accepted their wrong beliefs. But I mean, I, I feel the same way about the woke left, which is a bigger threat because there are more of them. So I, I think if you're asking from an American perspective, how can we create a unified identity people are proud of? I mean, that, that's a great question. I think the answer is that we already had one, though. One of the things that's important to realize in the USA is that what I call the old wars when I write, the military level conflicts between, say, native warriors or Matt Turner's black fighters, whites, the, the north and the south among whites. This was quite a while ago. I mean, it, it sounds like a silly and banal point, but I mean, it's we beat Germany in 1945, rounded up the last of the werewolf guerrillas, 1946. Brown versus Board of Education was 1954. So, I mean, we've had a coherent U.S. civic national identity for quite a while. We're just trying to reject it now. And I think that that's because the same communists that have been internal enemies of the country through this entire period are enjoying a resurgence right now. That might sound conspiratorial, but I would encourage people to Google Venona cables or read something like Ron Radash's commies. There was a massive underground of reds in the USA throughout the Cold War, and a lot of these people, Bill Ayers, who's a former terrorist, is one of the leading researchers in education. A lot of these people went on to the American upper class and teach in universities. Um, Patrice Colores herself has described herself as a trained Marxist. So she was asked, you know, you guys seem funny and witty, but this is, is this just a bunch of kids in the street? Do you have an ideology? And she said, of course we have an ideology. We're all trained Marxists. So I think that there's a conscious attack on U.S. civic national identity. What is U.S. civic national identity? Um, I would say that there are core points that when this has been researched in papers you've quite probably read, almost every American agrees with. Um, the USA is the first large modern democracy. I mean, we've traditionally been considered one of the greatest countries in history for that reason. So, I mean, when people say, well, the USA is a democracy, you had slaves, so on. The response is that almost everyone in most countries was a slave. I mean, if you read our founding documents, they refer to citizens here and then the subjects and sur subjects, I think, subjects and serfs is in the supplementary papers, but it's the citizens here and then the subjects of foreign kings. Most people were non-noble level property of the throne in Europe or West Africa, certainly Japan, most places where humans live. So the USA, I mean, first point of our nationalism, we are one of the first large modern democracies. We have a set of democratic institutions, or Republican if you prefer, like free speech that almost everyone in fact supports. Uh, every adult has the right to be armed. I mean, there, there are an entire series of these things. You have the right to be free from unjust political persecutions, detention without trial, although we're currently seeing that challenge right now. But just all of this. I mean, there, there are a dozen things in the Constitution that 95 or more percent of Americans agree with. Um, I think most people would also agree with point two, we're the capitalist democracy. So we in the USA generally do not support 65% of the population does not last I look. Um, massive, what the Swedes call erection to resurrection, government interference in life. Um, almost all Americans have traditionally opposed real communism. We still also see substantial opposition to mass socialized programs like UBI. So we have a early established democratic and free identity. I think we still mostly have a capitalistic or competitive identity. And this is certainly reflected in sport, in war. Everyone of every race watches the Super Bowl. I mean, the, the things that Americans identify with. And I think finally, the idea 
of America has always contained the idea that we are the destination democracy or nation. So assuming that they are reasonably mentally and physically functional, assuming they want to be Americans, anyone from anywhere in the world can come here and become an American. And that that is the true resistance to the alt-right and so on down the line. If you are willing to be a productive citizen of this country, you can be. So in days past, being an American didn't mean you had to be specifically a Brit or a German or an Irishman or an Italian. Any of those people could come here and be a Yankee. And no offense to my Southern listeners with that. But now, I mean, we've expanded the idea still further. So people can come here from China, the Philippines, Russia, other high performing countries, Nigeria, and become Americans. So there are a lot of coherent things in U.S. national identity. I mean, to pick five, we speak English. We obey American law. And that means something very significant. We don't have Sharia here. We have established rights. So on down the line, segregation has been illegal since 1954. And then the three points that I just established, we are free. Anyone can become an American. And we are competitive and capitalistic as a people. So the percentage of Americans that would agree with those things, I don't just want to make up a number, but it would be well above three-fourths, probably above four-fifths, everywhere but the campus, everywhere but among the anointed. And what you see very often with those folks is an attempt to convince the majority of the country that their commonsensical preferences are wrong. That, that's what a great deal of the content in media from that direction does. It's what it's focused on. Um, I don't know if some of it's designed as spirit-breaking. I don't know if they genuinely believe this, but... I don't think most citizens accept it. When you hear things like scientific American, biological sex is complex and tricky, drop your transphobia. I don't think most people believe that is to any extent true. So among the people, there's still a very strong national identity that you see everywhere from church to political rallies. And I, I think we should re-emphasize that as opposed to trying to break it down. You know, I, I think that's a great culmination to a very... Uh, very intriguing interview, uh, Dr. Wilfred Riley, uh, author of Taboo, 10 Facts You Can't Talk About, Hate Crime, Hoax, and, uh, and other books. Uh, Dr. Riley, you are a great voice right now, a needed voice, I think, for a lot of the issues and controversies that Americans are grappling with. And uh, I know we're going to see a lot of you uh, going into the future. Uh, so. any, any last words before we close the interview? Uh, not not really. I thought the, thought the questions are very good. Got to answer most of them and say most of what I think. Uh, the, well, one sentence would just actually one sentence. Trust your common sense. I mean, right now we're involved in a culture war and an attempted cultural revolution. And one of the things that always happens in both of those situations is that as during the fog of war itself, truth is the first casualty. So you're going to hear people all around you saying completely ridiculous things. All white people are oppressors, even if your ancestors were slaves in Sicily 100 years ago. As I just said, biological sex itself is tricky and tough to figure out. There are massive hidden strains of racism and sexism that you need to pay a sociologist to help you discover. Civil war may be a common. I mean, when you hear all this nonsense, just think, does that seem logically to be true? and trust what your answer is, because that very, very, very likely is accurate. Uh, so, you know, stay free, trust your own intelligence, go to the library. That, that's really the best advice I can offer, but it's good advice. Great. Thanks, Dr. Riley. And for those that are interested in learning more about uh, the group Stand Together Against Racism and Radicalism in the Services, you can visit our website at stars with two R's, stars.us. Thanks again, Dr.